Yes. All right. All right. Well, it is good to see you tonight. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is good to be in your house tonight. Lord, I thank you for this time that we have together. As Brother Randy mentioned, it's good to be here in the middle of the week and uh, just to have this time of fellowship, to enjoy the singing, to have this time in your word. God, I pray that you would uh, help the, the message tonight to be a challenge to each of us, uh, however it would be most needed. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight I want to begin with a couple of stories that in and of themselves are not important whatsoever, but they do obviously convey a point, or I hope that they convey a point that I think is important and something that might help us remember the thoughts maybe in the days to come. But a couple of weeks ago, it was a Monday, and so Mondays being my day off, I was getting a little bit restless around the house. I was tired of just sitting around. And so I asked Susie, I said, would you like to go to Amarillo in a little bit? The idea was we could go over there, we could walk around the mall, maybe do some shopping, grab a bite to eat, just waste a few hours. And though this is not an exact quote, her response went something like this. I don't need to, to be happy, but if you want to, that's fine. Now, you know what that's code for? I don't want to go to Amarillo today. So I could tell from her tone, I could tell the way that she said it, that's not what she's interested in. That's not what she wants to do. And so I I said to her, well, if you don't want to go to Amarillo, what about going over to Borger for a little bit, just getting out of town, going over there and walking through some of their stores and eating at one of their restaurants just again to get out of the house and, and spend some time together? And her response to that was, again, something to this effect, that's fine. I really don't care whatever you want to do. Now, keep in mind, we weren't upset at each other, okay? It wasn't as though she was giving me those answers because she was irritated with me. I have certainly heard those answers before when she was irritated with me. But but that was not the motivation behind those answers on that particular day. What it boiled down to was this. Is she and I really didn't know what we wanted to do. It was, we don't necessarily want to just sit around the house, but I don't know that I want to do this. I don't know that I want to do that. It was just one of those moments where I don't know what I want, but I guess it's just not this that I want. So that's the first story. Here would be the second story. This happened several months ago. Again, it was on my day off, and I had taken Susie out to eat for lunch, And as we were sitting there for lunch, I don't remember if it was a text or if it was a phone call, but she received one of those from her dad letting us know that they had just rushed uh, Susie's mom to the hospital with some medical issues, and, and everything was stable, everything was fine, they had everything under control, but her dad wanted Susie and the other siblings to know what was going on. And so as Susie sat there and was explaining to me what was going on, the nature of the the text message, we'll say, I I knew what I would want to do if that was my mom in that situation. I would want to make a quick trip over to Oklahoma City. And so I said to Susie, I said, what do you want to do? Would you like to go see your mother? And immediately without hesitation, she said, yes, I want to go. 
So within a few minutes, we had left the restaurant. We went home to tell the kids what we were doing, and we were on the road to Oklahoma City. But I want us to, to consider this, okay, the contrast in those two stories. Whenever it involved her mom, whenever it involved this situation that was somewhat alarming to her, though this isn't really the point of it, what Susie then knew without doubt was what she wanted. She knew without doubt, this is what I want. It was clear, it was concise, it was to the point. I want to go to Oklahoma City to see my mother. So do you see the contrast between the two stories? On one hand, you had options presented to her, and she was like, I don't know, I don't care, I don't have to to be happy. And on the other hand, it was, or in the other story, the other scenario, she knew exactly what she wanted, and that was what she wanted to take place in that moment. Now, I know the stories are different, but let me ask you this evening, how many of us can relate to what I've just shared with us? How many of us would have to admit that there have been times in our lives we've kind of known we've wanted something, we just didn't know for sure what it was we wanted? We've all been there at different times in our lives, right? We don't know what it is, what we want. We just know we don't want this, but it's not real clear. It's not real concise in our heads. And yet there are other times in life, whatever the situation may be, it is clear, it is concise, it is concrete. This is what I want, period, end of discussion. We've all been there, again, in different areas of life. Now, as you think about that, I want us to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, if you're not there already. And I want us to think about some of the context as we come to this chapter, as we come to this portion of Paul's letter. Here is what we know, because it's fairly obvious, that Paul is nearing the completion of his thoughts for this particular letter, right? I mean, he's only got a few more words that he's going to write, a few more words that he's going to pen. He's going to wrap this letter up, and that it will be sent back to the believers of Corinth. And here is what we know, is that as he is finishing up this letter, he is writing to those believers in Corinth, who have been influenced by the false teachers in their day. The ones who have come in and who have tried to undermine the authority, the apostolic authority of the Apostle Paul. Does this sound familiar? I hope it does. I'm trying to review this for a reason so that we'll all be on the same page. So Paul is writing to these believers who have been influenced by the teachings of the false prophets, of the false teachers. And, and we watched a few weeks ago in the last part of verse number 12 that Paul said this, that he was hopeful that the believers would be repentant of their way of going astray in their thoughts and in their approach to their Christian life. Uh, again, I hope this sounds familiar. Paul was saying that if they did not repent... It would be a source of grief, and it would be a source of humility. Paul made no bones about it. He didn't try to hide the fact that if they did not repent, it would have an impact on his life and on his joy and his overall mood and really approach to ministry. So then a couple of weeks ago, as we entered into chapter 13, and we looked at the first few verses, here's what we watched as Paul did. He asked them to examine themselves and to consider things and to prove whether or not they were of the faith. Because what Paul was wanting them to do was this, 
to think and to see, do you really believe what it is you say you believe? Is this really what you believe? Is this really what you hold to? Is this really what you adhere to? And and the reason that Paul was doing this is, again, because he wanted to see some repentance in their midst. And Paul knew this, and we understand this. If a person never takes time to think about their ways, they will always assume they're okay. If a person is not willing to sit back and examine the direction of their life and the direction that they are headed, if they're not willing to do that, there will always be an assumption on their part that everything's good, that everything's okay, and nothing needs to change. And without an awareness of what needs to change, again, there will never be repentance. There will never be repentance on the part of a believer who is not willing to consider the direction of their lives. And so as Paul is dealing with all this, as Paul is addressing this, I want us to look tonight. We're going to begin in verse number 8. We're going to jump around just a little bit because I want to deal with all of it. But we're going to look at just a couple of portions of this. But notice in verse number 8 what Paul says. He says, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. We can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. Whenever Paul writes of truth in verse number 8, what do we suspect he is writing about or has in mind? Well, I think about the only thing that we could conclude is this, is that he is writing of the truth of God's word, what they had revealed to them at the time, that God's word was true, that God's word was accurate, that God's word, as we would describe it, is infallible. It is without error, okay? And so of the truth of God's word, what had been revealed to them to this point, what Paul said to them was this, that we can do nothing against the truth. So what does this mean, to do nothing against the truth? It it simply has this idea uh, with it, or, or associated with it, that we cannot go in opposition to the truth of God's word. That is not something, Paul said, that he had a liberty to do. Here is what Paul's word, or here's what God's word says. Here's what God's word declares, what God's word makes known. And Paul is saying to these believers in Corinth, listen, I don't have the right to go in opposition to what God has already declared. He says the only thing that we can do is be for the truth of God's word. The only thing Paul says that I am allowed to do as it relates to the word of God is to be for it or to be in support of it. So it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter what the situation is. It doesn't matter what the context is. The only thing I can do is tell you what God's word says. I cannot go against God's word. Now, I'm just telling you, there is a message in that that text, that, that verse alone, that could be dealt with for a long time. Listen, the the word of God is the truth. And, And nobody, not you, not me, not anyone else, has the right to oppose it and to change it and to try to make it more palatable in today's society. Come on now. We do not have the right 
to go against the word of God, the only thing that we have the right to do is stand for the truth of God's word. So if it upsets people, if it offends people, if it bothers people, if it runs people off, that's, that's not the desired effect. But if that's the, if that's the end result of, of standing for the truth, then so be it. We are not allowed to go against the truth of God's word. We have to be willing to stand for the truth of God's word. Now, the fact that Paul would say that really shouldn't surprise us. But notice now what he says in verse number 10. He says, therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. So Paul explains again his motive behind the the sharpness of this letter that's being written. What's he wanting to do? He is wanting to accomplish helping the believers in Corinth get right with God before he arrives so that he does not have to be sharp with them face to face. If this can be addressed through a letter, if they can read this and get things right, then that's what he hopes to accomplish. And you notice in verse number 10, he says this, he said, according to the power which the Lord hath given me, Paul understood something. He had a a heavenly authority upon his life. He, he He had a heavenly spiritual authority upon his life. He said, for the purpose of edification and not to destruction. So Paul's desire was to build people up, not tear people down. But Paul was willing to do what needed to be done because he was not going to alter the truth just to make it easier for the people of Corinth to accept. Okay, so here's Paul saying all these things, but you may remember or you may notice we've now skipped over verses 7 and uh, verse number 9. So notice what he says in verse number 7. He says, Now I pray to God that ye do no evil. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil. The word evil, I think, is a word that many of us are familiar with, right? The word evil is a word that many of us are familiar with. It's not just talking about some terrible, wicked act of ungodliness. It's really just dealing with sinful activity in general. Okay, so whenever he speaks of that which is evil, if you keep this in context, the sinful activity is them allowing themselves to be influenced by the teachings of these false teachers. All right, so so he's not talking about robbery. He's not talking about murder. He's not talking about things of that nature. He's talking about something that we might say is as simple as allowing yourself to be led astray by the false teachers and the false doctrine. But notice what he said. He said, now I pray to God that ye do no evil. So what is he wanting them to avoid? He is wanting them to avoid sinful activity. How badly does he want them to avoid the sinful activity or the evil ways? Well, he says in verse number 7, I pray to God 
that ye do no evil. What does it mean to pray to God? It means to take that burden to the Lord in prayer. Here is the Apostle Paul. He has a relationship with the believers of Corinth. He has a heart with the, for the believers of Corinth. And he knows that some have been led astray. Their actions are not what they're supposed to be. And so he conveys to them, I am praying and asking the Lord, we would assume on a regular basis, that ye would not do or engage in evil, sinful activities. He says in verse number seven, not that we should appear approved. So he says, I'm not doing this for my sake. But he says, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. Now now notice here, Paul is not worried about his reputation at all. He's not worried about what people think of him, whether or not he be viewed as a reprobate or anything of that nature. Let's listen to this, please. This is, this is really, really important, all right? He is not worried about his reputation at all, but he says, I pray to God that ye do no evil and that ye should do that which is honest. Well, that's important. Because honest there is not necessarily dealing with integrity or being a person of your word. The word honest here is simply dealing with this thought, that which is good, that which is noble, that which is excellent, that which is beautiful, or we might say it like this, that which is right. Okay? That which is right. So what does he want? He says, but that ye should do that which is honest or that which is right. So I pray to God that ye do no evil. I want you to avoid this sinful activity and to do that which is right. So then you jump down to verse number 9, and he says this. For we are glad when we are weak and ye are strong, and this also we wish. You know what wish is dealing with? It's not just dealing with this idea of, man, I wish. Why hope? No, it's the same idea as what he conveyed in verse number 7. It's the idea of praying about something. So he says in verse number 9, that I wish and that I would pray this, even your perfection. Your perfection. So what does it mean whenever he deals with the subject of perfection? Does it mean for them to be without fault? Does it mean for them to be without any kind of error? No, because that's not possible for mankind. Okay, so what does it mean whenever he speaks of perfection? Well, I think most of us usually think of things like this, to be complete or to be mature in one's spiritual life, right? Okay, that is true oftentimes, but it also means this. And again, I, I personally think this is important. It means this, to put things in order. To put things in order or to restore or fix something that's been broken. So to put something in order or to restore or fix something that's been broken. Here's what we've got. 
Paul writing to believers who have gone astray. And you know what he is making extremely clear? What he is saying in a very concise manner? He is letting the believers of Corinth know, this is what I want. This is not some, I don't know, I don't care. I mean, it's fine if you do, it's fine if you don't. It's not that kind of approach at all with these believers in Corinth. He is like Susie was when it came to visiting her mother. It was, I know what I want. You know what Paul wanted? He wanted them to repent. He wanted them to begin restoring what was wrong and out of order. I want you to repent. I want you to change your mind. I want you to change your ways. And I want you to begin fixing what's been broken and restoring what's been out of place. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to avoid evil, sinful activity. And I want you to start doing right. Paul... What do you want from the believers of Corinth? Oh, I don't know. Oh, I hadn't really thought about it. Oh, I don't care. What what do you think sounds good? No, that was not Paul's approach. Paul, what do you want from the believers of Corinth? I want us to hear this. What do you want from them? I want them to repent. Start fixing what is broken and restoring what is out of place. I want them to avoid sin, and I want them to start doing right. That's what I want. Those were fair wants on the part of the Apostle Paul, were they not? Well, Paul, are are you worried about their, their family dynamics? Kinda, I guess. But what I want more than anything is for them to repent, restore what's out of order, avoid sin, and do right. Well, well, Paul, are you worried about the local economy there in Corinth? Well, I mean, I guess, but not really, because here's what I really want. Repent, restore, avoid, and do right. You understand this? There were many things that Paul may have been asked about or or could have been questioned on it. Like, is this important? I mean, there's a place for it. But this is really what matters. Because if you have everything else seemingly in place, I think Paul would say, but you don't have this in place then you really don't have what you need for the spiritual life. So this evening, just think about this for a moment, all right? Just just follow this as best you can. A couple of weeks ago, I tried to talk to you about the heart of a pastor and how the heart of a pastor is affected by church members who don't repent, right? I talked about that. I tried to be honest. I tried to be transparent. I tried to share share with you my heart. And, and, And I said then that there are many good pastors who just want to see people repent and and serve the Lord. 
So to build upon that a little bit tonight, I, I want to say this. Here is what every good minister should want to see from the people of God they have influence in. Repent and begin restoring what's broken and out of order. I don't care who the minister is. I don't care who the pastor is. I don't care who the preacher is. If they are at all what they're supposed to be, you know what they should want more than anything in the lives of the believers that they have influence in? Repent. And begin restoring what is out of place in your life. Start avoiding that sinful activity that is hurting you that is hurting your family, that is hurting your children, that is hurting your testimony. Any good minister wants to see that happen. And here's what they want to see. The people doing what is good and what is right. Avoid sin and just do right. Now, you and I may sit here tonight and we may say something like this. Well, isn't that understood? Isn't that what all ministers would want of their people? I'll just let you know that it's not what all ministers are worried about. There are ministers, for lack of better words, who aren't really worried about this. They're not really worried if the members engage in sinful activity and don't do what is right, who don't repent and change their lives. It's just not a concern of theirs. So a good minister, this is their burden, this is their desire, this is what they want more than anything else, to see people repent, fix what's broken, avoid sin, and do right. Well, is the minister worried about the finances of that family? Not as much as he's worried about the other things. Is he worried about their family dynamics? Not as much as he's worried about the other things. Why? Because all those will kind of take care of themselves if people will do what really needs to be done. You repent, get things in order, avoid sin and do right. Everything else will kind of take care of itself. So those are all peripheral issues that kind of hinge off of the main issue. So you sit here tonight and you may say something to this effect. Okay, so we know what you think a minister ought to want. What a minister ought to desire from his people, etc. Okay, I hope you understand that. But let's take it a step further. Should my wants be any different than your wants? What I want to see from God's people, should they be any different than what you want to see from God's people? The answer is no, it shouldn't be any different. Now, I, I, I think some of us have gotten this, and I think some of us are, are kind of lagging behind a little bit on this. So I, I want to walk us through this, okay? 
you should want the same thing that I want from God's people, and that being this, you ought to want to see people repenting of their sin. That should be a desire of yours. It's not just a desire that the preacher needs to have, that a Sunday school teacher needs to have, that a select number of people in the church need to have. No, if you're a child of God, then here is what you should desire, is that people would have a change of thought, a change of thinking as it relates to sin, and as a result of that, began fixing and restoring what has been broken. That's what we should want, every one of us, right? So you see somebody out there, whether it be a child, whether it be a friend, whether it be a parent, whether it be a co-worker, whomever it may be in your life, and you see them not where they're supposed to be, you know what your greatest desire should be for them? God, that they would repent. And that they would begin restoring and fixing with your help What needs to be restored? What needs to be fixed and what needs to be put back in place? That ought to be your desire. That ought to be your want more than anything else. And it ought to go past that just a little bit further to this point where we would say this. God, help them to stay away from what would be sinful activity. God, they know this isn't right. God, they know this isn't the way that a Christian's supposed to live. God, that they know this. Again, whomever it is, that should be our desire, is that as they repent and as they make things right and restore things, that they would say, or that we would say, God, help them to avoid those things that are going to hurt them. And then it should be, God, help them to see what is right so that they can do what is right. You understand this? It's not just the Apostle Paul who was supposed to have that want and to have that desire. It's not just me. It is supposed to be you as much as it would be anyone else God, there is this person in my life. I've got some influence in their life. I've got a little bit of of sway in in their thinking. And God, this is what I want for them. I'm not worried about their family right now, per se. I'm not worried about their job situation right now, per se. I'm not worried about the health issue that they're dealing with right now. As much as I'm worried about some other things, God, I, I want them to repent of some error in their lives. And I want them to begin making some things right and restoring things, getting rid of that sin and just doing what they know they ought to be doing. That should be my desire and that should be your desire. So then it kind of begs this question. Is it our desire? I mean, really, is that what we want? Now, I think here's what most of us would say. Well, yeah. Of course that's what I want. I want the people, whoever it may be, living in sin, I want them to repent, restore, I want them to avoid sin, and I want them to do right. Right? 
We say it, but we have to ask this question. Paul said in verse number 7, Now I pray to God that ye do no evil. He said in verse number 9, And this also we wish. And that word wish, again, is not just some wish and and some hopeful thinking. It's got the, the idea of prayer connected to it. What was Paul saying? He was saying this, It's not just something that I hope for. This is something that I pray about. It is of such concern to me that I am praying about this and I am going to the Lord in regards to this. Somebody says, why are you making an issue out of that? Okay, because here is our standard answer. Do we want to see people who are out of God's will get restored and repent and and all the things that I've mentioned? Yeah, we want it. Do we want it bad enough? That we're praying for it? I mean really praying and going to the Lord in this matter on behalf of these people that we have this this spoken burden for. How many of us tonight would have to be honest and just say this? We can sure be critical of somebody's sinful lifestyle without praying about their sinful lifestyle. We can sure talk about a person's sinful lifestyle to everybody but the Lord. Is that fair to say? We can identify it, we can mark it, we can spot it, and we can say, man, that's terrible, and they need to change, and they need to fix that, and they need to correct it, and all that's true. But do we want to see them made right bad enough that we're praying about it like we ought to be? I'm just asking. Because here is what I know to be my tendency sometimes. I want all these things to happen, but I don't pray for the people like I ought. Why would I expect spiritual victories to be won if I'm not praying for the ones I say or claim I have a burden for? Why should I expect that? Truth is, I shouldn't. So there's a church member, there's a family member, there's a friend. What do you want for him, Kyle? Uh, well, uh, well, I, I want this. Are you praying about it? Uh, well, when I think about it, then it must not be a great burden then in your life. I'm just saying... If we're not praying about it, it may not be as much of a want as we'd like to assume that it is. We ought to know what we want, and we ought to want it bad enough to pray about it. Can that be said of us like it ought to be? Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer.
Father, as I come to you this evening, Lord, I don't know the heart of any person in here tonight. I don't know where anyone stands on this issue. But I think I, I understand human nature enough to know this, that it's a lot easier to talk about a person's need, a, a, a person's shortcomings. It's a lot easier to talk about it than it is to pray about it. It's a lot easier to be critical of it than it is to really beseech you in that matter. And so, God, I don't know how many of us tonight would need to just be honest before you and say this, that we don't really pray about these things as often as we should. But, Lord, if we need to recommit to this, this need of prayer, then I pray that we'd be willing to do so tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.